Welcome to Leadership 2020. I'm Claire Carpenter. I'm joined today by Mark Simpson. Mark is the head of consultancy at Armour Risk Management and fascinatingly describes himself as a child, an electrician and a plumber. And I'm going to hand over to you, Mark, to bring that to life for us. Tell us what that's all about. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for allowing me to come in Mm. to speak today. So the idea behind the child electrician and plumber is ideally to have something that's a bit more memorable. And actually, I think it describes pretty well what I do. So I'm innately curious. And whenever I go into an organisation, there's always a ton of stuff that I don't understand. And children are brilliant at asking questions, naive questions. Ideally, I try and ask some intelligent questions. So that's the point, to, to build a body of understanding. And then the electrician is really about illuminating opportunities and problems. So, so often they are there, they exist in corners of organisations. You know, as I said, opportunities and problems. It's really casting a light on them. And then we can start to unblock them. And that's where the plumber comes in. Now, sometimes they're a bit smelly and unpleasant, <laughs> but it's not always that uh, way. Sometimes they're refreshingly warm as well. I love that. Thank you. And it's really memorable. Our topic today is a huge one. And I think it it takes some positioning, perhaps, to start with. We're going to talk about technology as a change enabler and specifically then thinking about what that means in terms of leadership challenge. But could we start by perhaps you giving us an idea about what is it we're talking about here? What technology are we referring to? So you're absolutely right, Claire. Technology is such a broad church. It's huge. I mean, it's been valued at a $5 trillion industry in 2019 by the research consultancy IDC. And it's forever changing. So what I'm about to describe, I am super confident, is already out of date. So what I describe as the new technology stack. So we still have legacy systems, our enterprise solutions that we've been investing in for some considerable time. We've had cloud computing around for for some time, but we're starting to see the rise of robotic process automation, artificial intelligence. We're seeing that starting to see its way into into voice and smart devices. So, the Alexas, the series of the world, other other devices available. We've seen the rise of of chatbots, and more than just being a bot that an operator uses to convey as a messaging service, but they've got a lot of intelligence built into them. We've got distributed ledgers and blockchain technologies, and that's a much broader church than crypto and Bitcoin. We've seen the rise of, of drone technology. We've seen 3D printing and some huge changes in that. Augmented reality, listening on my on the way up this morning to the radio, the, the CEO of O2 was describing 5G and what that will enable, including augmented reality. We've got the Internet of Things, a huge volume of, of connected devices. So there's really a ton of stuff that goes on. And, and just by maybe some examples, and again, an industry that's going to be close to $2.3 billion at the moment and, and growing rapidly, And we're seeing AI, artificial intelligence, in more and more devices and more and more applications. We're seeing it working from uh, from a recruitment point of view. People like uh, IBM have had Watson around for some time. Its ability to learn, for example, in the medical profession, so they've used, taught it how to spot fractures. It's analysed over 2 million x-rays and is now more accurate than consultants with 40 years versus experience. So we're seeing a huge proliferation of their 
Now, undoubtedly, it will remove roles, but equally, we've got roles today that didn't exist two years ago, and we will see new roles arriving there, so that's huge. All of this is also just about collecting data, big data, you know, what we describe as the new oil. We've got millions and millions of connected devices that are sending data. The IoT devices have improved. Battery life is around 15 months now, when it used to be a lot shorter. So many connected devices right through from, you know, you remove an item from your refrigerator, it can add it to your shopping list when you don't replace it, or it can check the sell-by date through to, you know, IoT devices. We've got plenty of biometric devices, other things that, that manage our whole lifestyle and general well-being. It's absolutely collecting a ton of data, which probably leads into a lot of challenges as well. Mm. I'm thinking about the pace of change that you're talking about, because you said at the beginning of this conversation that by the end of it, some of those things will be out of date. But actually, the pace of change is quite a challenge, isn't it? Definitely. There was a phrase that the US military coined the first Gulf War. And I don't often like quoting the military, but they, they came up with this term VUCA. So this volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. Yes. And I think the only certainty today, and, and it's a cliche, but cliches are truism, that today's pace of change will be slower than tomorrow's. Mm. It's, it's definitely there. And that presents a lot of challenges. The challenge of what speed do you change? The fact that no decision is always a decision. Is there a fear of missing out? We've definitely got you know, the FOMO thing or even the other one I call fear of being seen to miss out, not even missing out. You're not even bothered about missing out. So lots of things that definitely more more challenging and things are a lot less certain than they've ever been. But uncertainty presents opportunity as well. So it's not all bad, but there are definitely challenges in this changing landscape. I describe some of the challenges of we have the increased customer. And by that, I mean increasing customer demands. Customers are more sophisticated than they've ever been. You can argue that they're more informed and misinformed than they've ever been because of the sources of information and everybody online is an expert, whether they're what we'd view as a traditional expert or not. And equally, we know the experts are wrong and new thinking can be refreshing, but they're more informed. The customer's got greater influence than I think they've ever had they can have the loudest voice they've ever had through the variety of social media platforms. And the ability to generate a movement online quickly and effectively and outmaneuver corporations is there. So the customer can never be taken for granted. I mean, it never should have been, but anybody taking the customer for granted today is, is really heading for a big, big fall. And we've seen an increase in customer protection you know, the customer has more rights, more protection than ever. We've seen that manifest itself in terms of regulation and compliance. So we have obviously things like GDPR here in Europe and the threat of 4% of your global turnover or $20 million, whichever the greatest is a fine, focuses the mind. It's not just in Europe, though. I mean, for example, the California Consumer Protection Act comes into effect on the 1st of January 2020. That will lead to other states in the United States adopting more rigorous data protection. We've got a whole debates over who has sovereignty over data. We give so much of our data away for free today, and can we control it when it's out there? So lots of things around that. We've seen an increase of, of regulation, um, in particularly in the regulated industries. We've got things like the senior managers regime that came in and greater personal accountability behind that. So depending on your industry, I think the pendulum of regulation only increases. But not just from a regulatory point of view, we, we see lots of ethical 
positioning and technology paving the way for new challenges and things that we hadn't thought about that we need to think about things that we thought that we understood are changing I mean AI is, is a great example in terms of the questions and debates we're now having about legal accountability you know who's legally responsible for that is it the user of the device was it the manufacturer of the device was it the developer of the software that existed on the device the whole transparency around that in terms of information how it's being collected things like we're starting to see bias even get embedded into AI devices we've seen that the biases of the people that design and develop these unconscious or conscious mm. are actually manifesting themselves in the way that the AI behaves so this artificial intelligence sometimes can be really close to some of the unseen aspects of our behavior and who'd have thought that you know as we turn around and say well Technology is not sentient. It's not free of its own thought. No, but we can put some deterministic and rule-based things in there that, that actually reflect our biases. So we're seeing lots of things start to emerge. We're seeing a whole examination of standards and governance and governance models built in many different ways. We've started to see distributed autonomous organisations that are kind of building from kind of bottom up, from network approaches rather than some of the top down. So that whole landscape hugely changes. And then within teams, there's a whole change of dynamic. We've had remote working for some time, but mm. it, more and more of it is becoming the norm now. And we're starting to see the challenges to the attendance type cultures that we've had. We're also seeing the flip back to a number of organisations saying we've lost serendipitous engagement so actually we want to bring people back together mm -hmm. but also in ways that are flexible so this thing about work-life balance that we actually see more I prefer as owning the way that you work rather than it feeling like it's got to be dictated in a balance you you okay. determine that we see an always connected workforce now that's always online but arguably more distracted and sometimes even more disconnected or dysfunctional than it's than it's ever been in the technology link to that, we, we've seen that reflected in greater complexity. It used to be you had a head of IT or you had a, a CIO. Now you've got the chief information officer, you've got the chief technology officer that's more outwardly focused looking at the future. You've got the chief data officer in reflection of the fact that data is so valuable. We've got the chief digital officer because we've now got to be a digital business. We're getting chief experience officers. Mm -hmm. So we're getting more and more complexity around that so the, the whole landscape is changing hugely within an organization let alone at a leadership level so I'm thinking about so many different challenges in, in the, that environment that you're describing for people across different generations as well. I'm wondering what happens to people who feel left behind from all of this in terms of keeping up with the changes themselves? It's a big challenge. Now, you can, you can argue that's always been the case. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember the personal computer arriving and being you know, excited about that and then this advent from desktop computing away from mainframe and not understanding it and what it means and then being involved in some of the early web development in World Wide Web in 95, 96 yeah. when there's this feeling of what is it. And I remember at the time thinking, I feel like I understand so little about this, yet I'm, I'm involved, I'm expected to be able to, to deliver on it. And I think some of it comes back to some core capabilities. So if you have a thirst for knowledge and learning, lifelong learning, you know, the, 
the, the Carol Dweck approach of being a growth mindset, yeah. being innately curious and grinding it. So back into almost the deductive approach of what's the problem I've got. So great innovation typically comes out of there is a problem to solve. Mm. So not seeing technology as the, just the great new shiny hammer. Firstly, through the lens of will technology help me solve some problems that I've got? And maybe there were problems that I've, I've been aware of for some time, but there wasn't something there. It was a not now or not ready, or maybe we weren't ready. Mm. And then the other side of it, almost the yang to that, that ying, is the inductive approach of saying, can I look at technology through its potential now and saying, can I understand broadly what this does, uh, what it does, and why that might be interesting? I don't necessarily need to understand the how. Mm -hmm. I can let the experts deal with that but I can start to think about how might I use that so I've always tried to, to work on the basis of, of looking in looking to the past the present the future but looking out so looking to other industries and saying what are they doing can I role model their behaviors in terms of how they evaluate the technology potential how they consider it how they experiment with it and progress it and use it and can I model their applications? So could I take something from another industry? So I do a lot of stuff in financial services. Could I take stuff from other industries and bring that into financial services? Mm -hmm. An example, financial services has long had a, a reputation for being poor on customer service. So can we look at other industries that do that really well? The hospitality industries, the entertainment industries, those pieces, high-end retail, how, how do they interact with their customers how are we seeing the level of intimacy that for example mobile phone application developers get you know their users typically interact with them in terms of mobile devices every six minutes financial services would kill for that degree of intimacy it wouldn't know what to do with it but, but it can start to influence and, and talk to those things i do a lot of stuff in the wellness space as well so we're exploring how we can build intimacy and trust and then I'm always thinking, how could that be applied somewhere else? So I think the, the fear thing can sometimes come from us associating that with an identity. Mm -hmm. So we have this thing, this conditional positive re regard that says, hey, my worth is defined by what I know today. Let's accept that it, it isn't. It's defined by who and what you are and, and how you feel and how others feel about it. But it can be about your capability to learn. But for me, a lot of this stems because as human beings, we've been head obsessed since the Enlightenment, which is really helpful, but we've often ignored some of our other intelligences that I feel are really important from a leadership point of view. Mm -hmm. To give something a bit more concrete, the humans are a distributed system in terms of the way we make decisions. And the sophisticated cultures, what I call the isms, have known this for thousands of years. So Sikhism shamanism, Taoism, Buddhism, etc. It was only recently a couple of amazing guys, Grant Suzalu and Marvin Okra, basically modelled this thing called multiple intelligences, yeah, so M-braining for short. And they focus on, for today we just keep it simple, three brains. So our head brain, our heart brain and our gut brain. So we know a lot about the head brain. An amazing thing, 100 billion neurons. It's really there about creativity. That's its highest expression. So it's about cognitive perception, thinking, making meaning. And as I said, we've been obsessed with this since the Enlightenment, since Gutenberg gave us the printing press and democratised learning. We could learn from ourselves rather than others. And we've used this to make our decisions. But actually, we forget some other really important intelligences. So the Chinese have a great saying that the head is the general, but the heart is the emperor. So the heart brain 
highest ex expression is around compassion, but it looks after our values. Really important when we make certain decisions. It looks mm -hmm. after our emoting and it looks after the relational effect. Now technology we see can challenge that in a number of ways. It can challenge our values. We're now introducing technology to make decisions. The relationship effect, you know, the big thing about disruption and disintermediation, about taking the, about the fact that it will change the basis of my relationship with you. It, it might have been face-to-face, -face, it might have been more human-based, and now it's through the lens and through the channel of digital. That might change the way I think our relationship will emerge. Mm. It can enhance it, but we often frame things as ors and not ands. And then when we get to the gut brain, so a bit more understood, the gut brain, in terms of people talk about gut instinct, or a bit more known about but not necessarily understood. So the gut is the first thing that's created for us as a human being. It, it um, creates 85% of our antibodies. It's the first thing that often feels stress. You know, without being too explicit, things firm up or loosen up. We, we know these things. And again, the gut's primary purpose is around courage. So it's around our core identity. Yep. So the deep and visceral sense of who and what we are, it's around our self-preservation. So it looks after our, our safety and it's about our mobilization. Do we move? Do we not move? And again, technology can challenge our identity. Mm -hmm. So we might have been technical experts and then suddenly this AI thing can replicate my 30, 40 years of expertise in a handheld device. I'm working with a government and, and they're working to put an online physiotherapy diagnostic into a phone and, and it's based upon learnings from experts. It's hugely accurate. So all the things that we thought were high intellect, high professional services are starting to be automated. That can be pretty scary. So this, this whole thing about how you make meaning, which leads to some elements of fear as well. I mean, if we take, for example, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, your average tenure is between what I call three and 20 quarters. And what I mean by that is three quarters of bad results and you're fired. If you run your course, tenures are typically around, f around five years, so 20 quarters. But you're answering every quarter. And so there's, there's a great deal of expectation on being right and being continually right. Some of the decisions we're making are multi-year decisions. Now, bear in mind, we often succeeded by not making mistakes. Many industries reward you for not making mistakes. You don't make a mistake, you're given more responsibility. You don't make a mistake, you're given more. And then comes that scary day when you're given staff and people to lead. And your only role model has been another technical expert who's led you in a certain way. You might even want staff, mm. but now you're expected to lead them. And so much of this head-led piece. So there's a lot of fear around that. And then suddenly technology comes along and it enables us in ways that arguably we haven't seen for 20, 30 years. And we're expected to do this thing called innovation. Mm. We're expected to go out there, be creative, disrupt this word everybody uses, but don't make mistakes. So that's challenging from a, from a leader point of view. And even as a leader of what do you pick? You know, I open by describing nine or ten different technologies. Yeah. Which one do I pick? And one of my first challenges might be I don't understand it at all. I've spent the last couple of years doing a lot of stuff around educating people around blockchain. Rightly so, because I've, I've gone through this cycle. There's, there are a lot of misconceptions. A lot of CEOs have been privately comfortable to admit that they don't understand the technology and what it means, but publicly 
are saying, well, we're exploring, we're doing these things and hoping that they're not pressed for, well, what does it mean? So I've had conversations with people about, oh, so blockchains are destroying the planet and we're trying to explain the difference between different consensus methods. After we've gone through it, there's a, oh, so that's all it is. Oh, I feel a lot more comfortable now. And when you ask them, why wouldn't you be asking this question in my organization? People expect me to know. They expect me to lead. Now, for me, one of the big things in leadership is around the courage to be vulnerable. Exactly. So shine a light to say, I don't understand. I'm a bit confused. I'm uncertain. I'm unsure. All these other things. Because I think as a leader, that sets a tone. Yeah, and it's a trust-building behaviour, isn't it? Patrick Lencioni talks about that, doesn't he? Around does. building trust starts with the leader showing vulnerability exactly. to him or herself. And let's face it, with technology, none of us can be certain about where it's going and what it means. So I think that's really important from a leadership point of view. I think a leader being cognizant of the past is important. So looking at how has the organisation managed change in the past? Because it's fine and it's great to say we're now changing and our intentions can be beautifully beautifully new and refreshing and we're really comfortable you know, wanting people to fail. Mm. But in the past, if we've punished failure, and the analogy I use, if you've ever seen an animal, a wild animal that's been in captivity for a while that's released, often the first thing they do when they open the cage and push them out is they run back to the cage. Mm -hmm. They run back to the safety of the environment that they know. Because what we tend to do is we will adapt, first of all, to survive and then to thrive and progress. So as a leader, it's really about understanding that tone. And some of it's even in language. So Jeff Bezos at Amazon, for example, doesn't like to use the term fail because it has a kind of suggestion that you've, you haven't succeeded, you've done something wrong. So they will use terms like explorer. Now you can turn around and say, well, hang on, Mark, that's just a change of phrase. But actually, when saying to people, I'm not sure what the outcome is. I want you to just go see. I want you to learn. I want you to bring back some knowledge that says, that's okay, we won't be doing that. Or we should be exploring this some further. Or actually, remarkably, we've already hit a nugget and there's some stuff that we can do. And then what you start to do is empower that new muscle, the ability to learn and giving people the capability to learn, mm. giving them the confidence to learn in applying it and demonstrating and giving them the, the commitment to change. One of my big bugbears is people often use the term people are change res resistant. And it's a lazy label mm. that's applied to people. Because let's face it, we all go through a lot of change. We change schools, we change jobs, we get married, we have kids, we move house, we change profession. They're big changes. So why is the stuff in the work environment considered a bigger change than that? So the, the human being is absolutely capable of changing. It's around are we supporting people in the right ways. Change is really interesting, isn't it? Because there's always some level of loss involved with change, isn't there? Whenever you move from one thing to another, you leave something behind you. And I think the reticence to change sometimes comes from not wanting to leave that thing behind you, whether it's safety or yeah. it's the risk aversion or it's the security of the cage in yes. the animal metaphor. And I think there's a really important role for leadership here to show that level of safety and survival in being free to make mistakes, in being, you know, really, I'm thinking back to your child analogy right at the very beginning of yep. our conversation around thinking about your child ego state being joyful and playful and creative and and free to learn and believing that anything is possible. I, it's I accessing that, isn't it? 
Yes, and then suddenly this thing called fear comes in. I, I could not agree with you more. And it's so interesting that the propensity to focus on what the loss is. Mm. I have this thing, I, I use and all the time. So how can we change an or into an and? So yeah. do we lose these things? We don't lose those capabilities. And actually we can grow some more. So we can extend those. How do, how do we build it? Yeah. And ha- sometimes it's even like the rock climber analogy. So you can keep three parts on the walls and say while you're learning a new skill a new application and so many things I think of the things that I learned in the past that I reuse and it might even be 20 years later I think wow this is very similar to what we did before we're just doing it in some different ways but you're right the, the leader's role of creating safety is really important I think there's also a piece around emoting so the leader showing some connection with the people and with the change and the potential and and it can also be a connection with the dissatisfaction of where we are and, and a belief in everybody that we can do better and that's not to say that people did a bad job in the first place but just things move on so we, you know we look at computing power 20 years ago that was at its peak then but now we and we've continually done better so we can continue to do that but also how can we get people to connect to a future state, mm. to a better state? And not just what we want them to think about that state, but what will they feel about it? Yeah, what will it look like, sound like, feel like? Can they picture it? You know, whatever their representation system is. Some people are really kinesthetic, so they want to know what it feels like. Other people want to hear what it's going to be like. Others will want to see it, see that picture. So how can they do that? And thinking that the people are motivated in different ways. Some people are motivated towards... So very goal orientated. I'm personally a stick orientated person, so I'm motivated away from. Mm. So accountability is my thing. So understanding, you know, how people are motivated in different ways, and one of the easiest way, ask them. <laughs> yes. We assume so much. Deliver the message in the way that people connect. Like I said because we're all immune to PowerPoint by now. I think. Mm. Now, against all of it, what I'd say is never forget the power of the customer. So go back and connect to that that customer, ask them. And then when you ask them, what's critical is listen. Really listen, don't ask to defend, don't ask to then immediately solve, listen to understand, to absorb, and then think about how you're gonna apply it. In the same way that you should absolutely listen to your teams. Mm. You know, they're fantastic problem solvers if they're given the right space and the right support. I'm reminded of a great piece of work by Julie Starr, who's a fantastic coach, and she talks about deep listening, Mm. um, where it's about listening only to really deeply connect and understand the person who's speaking, whether or not that's with their voice. I'm thinking about the, the listening that happens far beyond just the words that are being used. And that's an interesting skill for a leader, isn't it? It is, and it's about that patience and say, and it's about that understanding. When we take that back to the multiple intelligences, so this is about not just listening with your ears mm. and not just with your head whirring with thoughts when you're already taking that information and thinking about the so what. Mm. It's about just questioning to clarify, but it's what you're seeing. Mm. So what are you observing about the other person? What level are they communicating? Because you might be communicating a head level when you're asking the question but actually they're communicating back at a different level so to give you an example when you observe body language somebody touches their heart Mm. that's typically a value-based response if somebody is swallowing they can be taking that information down deep to their gut if their stomach is even rumbling it doesn't mean they're hungry or they've just eaten lunch it can be the gut brain if somebody uses scattertorial language Mm. that is their gut brain speaking but 
I absolutely agree with you, Claire. From a leadership point of view, that is a capability that maybe isn't honed as much as it could or should be. It's a learned skill, isn't it? Yes. We can practice this. We are all capable of it if we truly want to do it. Mm. I'm reminded of, um, this is definitely not my phrase, somebody else's a long time ago in my career who said to me that all leaders light up rooms. Some of them do it on the way in. And I think that stayed with me my entire leadership career. You know, I want to be the leader that lights the room up, not the one that the lights come on when I've left. That's a that's a beautiful one. I will definitely be using yeah, that. It's yours. Leverage yeah, thank it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm thinking about bringing ourselves back to the beginning of our conversation around these incredible pace-setting changes in technology and the challenges that cascade from that into organisations and thus to the leaders, from your experience, from the people that you're talking to and working with now, what do you think are some really fundamentally important things that that leaders, regardless of their organisational environment, would be best working on right now? Yes. I would say, first of all, look out. So rather than me say you should pick technology X or Y, Mm. because there are a set of tools. Depending on your organisation and depending on the environment you're in, will depend on what works at the time. So first, But first of all, I'd say look out. Look at what your customers are doing and ask them. Always be asking them what, what their problems are, what they're doing in other facets of their business mm. that they like, because they're not just interacting with you. And it's not just about your competitors, but it can be other parts of the value chain. They, you, know, you might be involved, for example, in an outsource solution, the, some back office function, but actually what they what really lights them up is is what somebody else is doing for them in their front office with their customers. Yeah. So first of all, I would say be doing that. But also not just looking out in your industry, other industries, but also look in. So be walking the floor, speaking to your teams and asking them what they're seeing, what difficulties they're having, asking them even some of the golden ticket questions. Because if there were no constraints, what might we do? Or if we knew that we couldn't fail, what might we do? Mm. And, and just have those as exploratory questions. So I would be doing that. And I'd also, to help unpick that, look for the bright spots that already exist in your organization. So what I mean by that is there are other areas where you've been really great at navigating change. Every organization has them. There have been areas where you've been really great at applying technology, applying new ways of working. So look at that, model it, see how else that you could use it would be that. I would be examining the culture and saying, you know, rather than just say we want an innovative culture and telling people they've got to do that thing, let's look at how it works today. How are we enabling people? How are we stifling people? And again, it's that deep, deep listening. Mm. And linked to that, I would definitely encourage all leaders to engage in some reverse mentorship. And reverse mentorship, traditionally people view it as, okay, we'll we'll get some some young people that great, absolutely, definitely do that. But also diversity is around something completely different, freedom of thought. So go and ask some people that work completely differently to you and maybe in other industries and ask them if they'd be prepared to act as a mentor. You can sound out and describe those things. Because innovation exists, it's around you everywhere and the the, the application of technology is everywhere. To give you an example, last weekend I went to a place that I go to probably once every couple of years just to observe. I go to my local tyre shop 
because they do process excellence like only one other place I've seen, and that was the sandwich shop. Okay. So the ability to get a tire changed, or in the sandwich shop, the ability to get food, and the unspoken, how people come in, support each other, they don't even ask for help what they do. The level of unconscious competence is incredible, and just to stand there and, and model it yeah. is, is superb. And looking for other things and in other industries, how they, they work. So I'd say as a leader, be innately curious mm-hmm. and bring back your musings, and sometimes even bring back questions and say to people, what about this? Should we think about this? Give people some license, give them some time to explore, give them some resources to explore, and be asking them to think about ideas and the the so what's and the what ifs and why wouldn't we type approaches. All really important advice, I think, and just opening up that change possibility, isn't it? Yes. Without fear. Yes, because the world is changing ever quicker mm. and it, our ability to be agile, our ability to be resilient, our ability to learn, but equally against all these things, our ability to be empathetic, mm. to be supportive, dare I say it, to be kind, they'll yeah. all serve us really well. Yeah. Thank you so much this morning. No, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a rating and review to help others find out about the show. This is a Podo podcast produced by Nick Hilton in association with Corndell.